This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today, I am delighted to be joined by Richard Sandler. Richard is an attorney and an investor who is one of the great Jewish leaders in the United States. He is the uh, recently former chair of the Board of Trustees of the Jewish Federations of North America. That's the umbrella organization for all, I believe, 146 federations in North America. He's also the former chair of the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles. He's on the board of the Prostate Cancer Foundation and the Milken Institute, as well as the corporations Knowledge Schools and Heron International Limited, which is a real estate company. So, Richard, uh, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Mark, and uh, thank you for letting me join the illustrious group that you have had the pleasure of uh, speaking to over these last several months. Well, thank you, and uh, and thank you for choosing a passage, which actually um, was the subject of uh, my wife's uh, rabbinical uh, senior uh, essay, which was on this passage. It's a really great one, and it's uh, Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 13. So, Richard, why don't you tell us... Uh, What's going on in Deuteronomy 30, 12, and 13, and then uh, why it's meaningful to you? Well, I'll give you a little background. One of the reasons it's meaningful to me is I have these different roles that you had uh, graciously spoken about a few minutes ago. I thought about a lot what was going on in our community. And I basically, in that period of time, was thinking about how in the Torah, as we went from Bamidbar in the desert to Devarim, the words, we went from total almost chaos. Uh, we went from Lashon Hora and uh, Korak and, and, and all of that to the words, to the calm uh, and to the Shema uh, and the Shema meaning hear and listen. So we went from talking and Lod Shahora to listening and trying to understand each other. And in this particular passage, people, the Israelites, they're getting ready to come into the Holy Land and they're listening to probably the greatest teacher and leader uh, of our people, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu. And he is basically saying to them, hey guys, it's easy, okay? It's right here, it's right in front of you. The Torah is here, how you act is here, and you have choice. It's not preordained, it's up to you. So choose a good life and you will live a good life. So that's always meant to me, a lot to me, especially today uh, in our own community when we deal with so many issues where you want to tell everybody, stop, listen to one another. That's right. Okay, let's join together and, um, you know, let's choose what Hashem has provided for us. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's why we've survived these thousands of years. It's why we have made a huge difference in this world. We have a guidepost. We have a value system. And that's what really Moses is saying here those thousands of years ago. So you could almost see in this passage, um, Moses is anticipating uh, people being either intimidated by the Torah or even saying it's not for them. I mean, because we hear the same objections today where it's so hard, there are so many commandments, there's so much to do, it's so complex, I'm not a great rabbi. And he says, it's not in the heaven for you to say, who can ascend to the heaven and take it for us so that we can listen to it and perform us? Nor is it across the sea for you to say, 
who can cross the other side of the sea and take it for us so we can listen to it and perform it. Rather, the matter is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart to perform it, which is what he's telling us what the Torah is, exactly what you said. It's the great guidebook. It's not a law book. It's not a cookbook. It's not a theology book. It's a guidebook to help us live better lives today. And it's not just a guidebook. It's the best one ever written. And therefore, it's really practical. And that's what he's saying. It's really, this is a really practical book. Don't be intimidated by it. It's totally practical. If you think it's intimidating, I think Moses is saying, you're not reading it right. It's there for your benefit. It talks about how we are a small people. Okay. And it talks about what is going to happen to us. And here we are all these years later, we're still a very, very small people. Uh, we're really, we're 0.2% of the world's population today. Right. In the United States, where everybody thinks, you know, the Jews control everything, we are less than 2% of the population. You know, less than 10% of congressional districts have any effect of Jewish votes. Okay. So, you know, yet in spite of all of that, through these thousands of years, we have survived. We continue to survive and we keep making a difference in the world totally disproportionate to our numbers. I mean, almost mind-boggling disproportionate to our numbers. You know, people quote 23 to 25% of all Nobel Prizes have been won by Jews. The difference we have made in medicine today, even in, in health, in science and technology, in statesmanship and philosophy, in so many different areas. And, you know, I basically say to people, so why? How does that happen? To people today, young people today in America, they have a choice that my parents never had. They have a choice of whether they want to be Jewish or not. And so when someone says, why? And I said, look at who your tradition is. Look where you come from. Look at the difference we've made. How come? Are we smarter than everyone else? I don't think so. Are we better than everybody else? No, there's good people throughout the world, the Jewish, not Jewish, et cetera. But we have had one consistency for 4,000 years. This consistency is the Torah. It is our guidebook, is our value system. And those that live by that value system, basically, have helped change the world, made the world more meaningful and better, and made their own lives meaningful and better. So there's, all, there's, there's the, the value system that you talk about. And there's also, when, when you say that we have the Torah, that's actually also Moses's absolute genius and his audacity when he said in earlier Exodus, he said, we're going to build our future upon universal education. He said, write it on your doorposts, which presumed that everyone knew how to write and everyone knew how to read. He said, when your children ask, not if your children ask, but when your children ask, you shall teach it. You couldn't teach a tradition like this with an oral tradition. You could only do it if there was a book. It's too rich and too detailed. The oral tradition, if it was a game of telephone, we'd get it wrong in one generation. But the audacity of coming into the ancient world where the alphabet had barely been invented and saying, we are going to build the Jewish future upon universal education and it worked and it's and it's, it worked and you're exactly right. We had the Torah then. We have the Torah now. It's the same book for thousands of years. And it's the tradition of learning and education that really Moses inculcated um, thousands of years ahead of his time. And it, it's astonishing. Now, in terms of your work with uh, JFNA, when you were basically the, the chairman of the umbrella organization for the largest Jewish charity, probably in the world, certainly in the United States, but uh, probably in the world. You had a very interesting view into Jewish continuity. So how did you see through that lens generations of Jewish engagement? Just take three generations, take grandparents, parents, and children. Like, What were the differences that you saw in that? And how do you think those differences will play out into the future? Well, just taking those three generations, basically, if you take my parents' generation, my dad was an immigrant. 
uh, to this country uh, from a very, very uh, learned background. His father was a Torah scholar, uh, so he was from an Orthodox background. Uh, he was a founder of a conservative congregation here in Los Angeles. And basically, and, you know, and now my children who, you know, go to went to a Jewish preschool and uh, now go to a secular school. So as I look at the three generations, I'm basically saying what I my greatest concern is to make sure that my grandchildren basically understand who they are and where they came from. My father had no question. He knew who he was. He knew what the tradition was. He knew what the Torah provided for him. And I believe that one of the and, and, and your father would not have had an exit opportunity, even if he would have considered one, there would not have been one available to him. No, he had no choice. Right. Okay. He, as I said, he couldn't choose whether or not he could be Jewish or not. Right. My grandchildren, they can make that choice. Basically, living in America today, they can make that choice. So we have the two-edged sword in the United States. The United States provides Jews the greatest opportunity to participate in society and become part of society and still become be Jewish if they want to. That has ever been provided to Jews, you know, outside of a Jewish homeland. Okay, uh, in the history of the world. And because of that, basically, there's this concern of assimilation. My belief is, as if our responsibility is just making sure that we teach our children who they are and where they come from, that we basically give them that tradition. Uh, what is the value? We teach them the book. And basically, my biggest concern today is we've moved or moving away from that. But we also have pockets that are moving back towards that. That's right. Yeah, it, it, it's a major concern that um, that so many people uh, think about the bar mitzvah as the end. I mean, who else stops their education when you're 12, 13 years old? I mean, that's that's when things are really beginning. I mean, it's not when they end. It's when they begin. It's when Jewish educations really begin. You basically have some of the fundamentals and a little bit of the foundation. Now it's time to really get started. But uh, yeah, it's a tragedy that it ends for so many. But when you were uh, the chairman of Jewish federations and you had a view into Jewish giving nationally, what was your sense of the Jewish engagement in the younger generations, let's say those who are now in their 20s and 30s? And, and, and your knowledge is contemporary because you were the chairman of this up until when? Pretty recently. Up until uh, two and a half years ago, <laughs> two yeah. years ago, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's very current and, and your, your insights into this would, would be of a total relevance now. Yeah. So where do you see about so the generation of 60 and above, we can imagine what the engagement there. What about the generation in the 20s and 30s, people in their 20s and 30s? I think there's a lot being done in the community today to reach out to that generation. Now, you know, I came to be the chair of JFNA, as you indicated, after chairing the Los Angeles Federation. Right. And when I was chair of the Los Angeles Federation, we brought in a CEO, Jace Anderson, who's still our CEO. And we worked very, very hard together to develop programs for exactly that generation. Basically everything from high school to young adults, you know, we called it everybody from huh. 20 to 40. Uh, it, it, even high school developing giving among high school. Yeah. We even develop, you know, giving trips. Uh, how do we engage people in high school that are going to college? Look, it's very challenging for Jewish kids on college campuses today, as we all know. Absolutely. Uh, especially when they don't have much of a background. So we developed a lot of programs in that area for young adults. We developed a program called New Roots, N-U-R-O-O-T-S, which is to really focus on how do we meet young people where they are, find out what interests to them, listen to them, and then show them how their tradition really meets their interests and their goals in life. So as I got involved on a national level, I noticed we're not the only community doing that. So there are programs today that did not exist before. 
Are uh, they working? They are working. You know, we really find our program that we've brought in, you know, several thousand kids who come back a second or a third time. Um, you know, it's not just a, a social event. It's not just a concert. It's just not a weekend dance. Um, there is learning. There is community service. There's all kinds of facets. We work with other organizations, with synagogues in that area. Right. So I, I think, is, um, yeah, Jewish engagement seems to be successful to the extent it is serious. That is correct. You know, and, and look, at the concern today is that it gets into the same category that the rest of society is falling into, which everything becomes politicized. OK, and then yeah. gets divisive. So one of the things that I have tried to get people to really focus on is study of Torah so they understand the value system that they're trying to teach. OK, because today everybody says, hey, Israel isn't isn't operating under Jewish values. You're not operating under Jewish values. And my comment is, how do you know if you don't know what Jewish values are? We had a speaker at the GA, the General Assembly of Jewish Federations North America, when I was here in L.A., uh, a mutual friend of yours and mine, David Wolpe. Okay. I love David. And David's message that day was fantastic because I've quoted him many times since when he says, we are losing our connection to the beauty and the depth of our tradition. So basically, we have to know who we are and where we came from. That's what we need to spend our time on. You know, and that's what we got to get our kids to try to understand what about their tradition should interest them. OK, it's great to be involved in social justice. It's great to care about other people. But you also have to do it in a perspective where you understand that everyone doesn't believe exactly what you believe. And people that don't believe what you believe could also be very good people. That's right. Two, two people. uh who could study the same passage with the same intensity, with the same integrity, and be inspired to different political conclusions from that passage. And that's fine. And they're both engaging in sacred acts. And to say that one view embodies Jewish values and the other doesn't, or to take one passage out of context, which happens a lot out of context, and to say that, therefore, this political position follows naturally and inexorably from that passage is just wrong. The, 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 the Bible does not give us political positions for today. Whatever today is, it's a guidebook for all of eternity. Hundred percent, and and one of the things that we do talk about a lot, or at least I try to talk about a lot to the leadership in our community, is when there is a group that you disagree with, or you think is damaging to our future. And we know there's a lot of young kids that are involved in these different groups um, that you know may have what others consider extreme view. I always start from the point of view: there are kids. Okay, let's find out why they believe what they believe. That's right. Yeah. Let's 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 understand what they care about. And if we listen to them, we really listen to them, they might be willing to listen to us and they might understand that the world is not as simple as they try to make it. OK, it's just not I'm right. You're wrong. I'm good. You're evil, which is where we are today in our society. And as I said before, it's not just in the Jewish world. You know, it's throughout our society. Look, we're going into an election period right now. It's going to be the ugliest thing that I assure you that we have seen in our lifetime. Yeah, I mean, uh, and that education process of our children, I mean, by the, by the point you're describing it, it may be too late. The education process needs to begin early. And if kids study the Torah, they'll learn about how, how complex situations are, how complex people are, how difficult life is, and how wrong simple answers almost always are. But if we just pick that up with them when they're late teenagers, it's too late. You know, Mark, I, I'm a glass half full kind of person. You know, I don't 
believe is necessarily too late. Uh, I think, again, if you basically tell a person you care about them and you care what they think and what they believe, and though you disagree with them, you want to understand them, you really, you could have a conversation. And young people are curious. You know, there's such, there's a view of, of, of my generation that since we are, we didn't grow up with technology the way that kids today grow up with technology, we think that young people have an attention span of about, you know, 40 seconds and they do everything in how many characters, et cetera. But when you sit down and you talk to young people, because that's one of the things that I have really tried to do, because I do want to understand, they know the difference. They understand that what they get from their phone or what they get from the internet is not deep. They understand that. You know, they understand there's more to life and they are interested. So they do have curiosity, but you have to basically get their attention first and you're not going to get their attention if you come in and tell them why you're right and they're wrong. Absolutely. And, and, and one who approaches them that way does, does not deserve their attention. And in fact, you know, you, you quoted the Shema before. And interestingly, the Shema says, uh, these words shall be on your heart. So the Kutzker Rebbe, the great Kutzker Rebbe says, why on your heart? Words don't do very much good on your heart. They should be in your heart. And the answer is yes, but you have to open your heart. And uh, that's why in the, uh, in the uh, Haggadah, our Passover Seder, in the final questions of the one who does not know how to ask a question, it says you must open it for him. In other words, you must yes. open their heart. And how do you open it? You open it through relationship and through respect. That's how you open it. And only then can, can there be the dialogue that can lead to this kind of progress in an education and what is probably going to be an education in complexity. 100%. Look, there's, there's a synagogue here in Los Angeles called ECAR which I think has developed a certain national reputation. Sure. Sharon Browse is a friend. She was two years behind me at Melbourne High School. Okay. So Sharon is a person that I have come to admire and respect and consider a, a, a good friend, though we are different generations. And Sharon and I have different conversations at times. We don't agree on a lot of things. But I remember, I think it was last year, it was either last year or the year before, it was the second day of Rosh Hashanah. And I go to my traditional conservative synagogue, but I've also, you know, want to know more of what she's doing. And I went to Ikar. She said, you ought to come and see what we're doing. So I went the second day of Rosh Hashanah. It was on a Tuesday. And their services are in a gymnasium at a school. They don't have hmm. a permanent facility right now. So I would say from my upbringing and my background and, and my experience, that you go to any non-Orthodox synagogue on a Tuesday afternoon on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, there's an echo in the room. I mean, there's not a right. lot of people there, Okay. So I go there on Tuesday. I get there around a quarter to eight in the morning. It's about 80% full. Everybody's sitting on folding chairs, okay? By 10 o'clock, the place is packed. And I'm looking around, and I would say that 60% of the people there are under 50 years old. And I'm going, wow, okay, Sharon's figured it out. Now, I may disagree with her philosophically on certain things or politically on certain things, but I respect her because- if I have a conversation with her as to what does she believe, she can tell me what she believes and why in a way that is basically very convincing, okay? And it is Torah-based. So she, to me, represents so much of what the future needs to be. And going back to your question before, you know, is it too late when these kids get in their 20s or their 30s? Well, it's not too late at ECAR. Because a lot of these kids probably never even connected with their Judaism until they met her. So there are people like that in the community. There are people like David Wolpe or also Eddie Feinstein here in L.A. We, we have amazing rabbinic talent that touches young people and can, and can speak to them.
certainly sounds that way. Um, so moving from uh, one text to the other, so from the the, the Torah, and particularly the text of Deuteronomy, to um, uh, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. So um, Andre uh, Malroux says, um, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, um, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are some things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Richard, in all of your years in philanthropy, in Jewish leadership, in business and in law, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? I would say that people are basically good, okay? I think they basically want to be good. At the same time, it's really hard to get people to change, okay, from their basic nature. How is it hard to get people to change? I think when people grow up with an attitude towards life, they have to really want to be introspective to make that change. Right. So look, we're coming upon the high holidays. Right. High holidays, you know, Rosh Hashanah is all about change, basically, right? What can I do to be better? Right. Which is, I think, just a brilliant concept in our tradition. Basically, to look at yourself, what do you, how can you be better than you were last year? You know, are you serious about it? And I think that if you can get people attention, you know, it's the old joke, you got to hit them by a two by four first. Hmm. But if you can get people's attention, I think, you know, there's hope because I think most people want to do good. They really do. And it's just a question of getting their attention and telling them that somebody cares about them. Well, I think I think that's that's so interesting. And it reminds me of what the Kutzker Rebbe we talked about before, what he said he would talk to his students and he would say to his students, how far is it from east to west? And someone would say, well, Jerusalem is this many thousands of miles. Or, and he would say, no, it's just one step. And, 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 and going west back to Shema, when your, your question on things. And I think the biggest the biggest challenge that we all have that are trying to trying to help improve the world is to get people to listen. I think listening is such an important part of really who we are and where we come from. We come from debate. I always like to talk about uh, Hillel and Shammai. Right. Okay. Perfect example of people that disagreed, but listened to each other with respect. And I think that's, that's the challenge today. That's right. And I think it was Rabbi Sachs, who you quoted before, talks about the word Shema. And he says, really not that well translated. He said, because listen implies something passive. He said, the best translation, not that it's perfect, is the word, the old English word, hearken. You know, this kind of very active form of listening, you know, hearken. And uh, so it's, it's exactly what you say. It's listening, but listening actively, listening with an eye to action, listening with an eye to maybe this person can change me and that'd be great. Whereas I think I think you're right today. That's that's pretty it's a pretty rare occurrence. You know, it's I don't remember who it was. that said if you're in a debate or an argument, you know, speak as if you're right, but listen as if you're wrong. That's brilliant. I wonder who said that. Yeah, I mean, it was as I, 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 I know who told me that. It was a uh, an Asian Torah rabbi that we were talking one day, and he was quoting someone. I just don't remember who he was quoting, but yeah. I just thought that says it all. It's almost like when you're younger and you get involved in debate. One of the great exercises is to make you take the side you don't agree with. That's right. I mean, I mean, uh, David Wolpe, our mutual friend, uh, he tweeted the other day. He said, everyone should engage in a political argument this weekend, taking the other side. Right. Perfect. You know, absolutely perfect. Because when you take the other side, you're actually making good arguments for the other side. 
Right. You're not going to make the worst argument you can you can invent. You're not going to make some kind of a paint some picture and then that's a caricature of the position and advocate it. You're going to try to find the best arguments and the best reasons to make them. So if everyone did, if David, as usual, is so right, if everyone got together for political argumentation and took the other side and did that with some consistency, I think things would change. For sure, because then you would understand, you know, look, we all learn this, this. You know, you and I have talked about conversations we've had or, or things we have read. We learn from people who disagree with us, okay, who are smart and caring people. I learn a lot more from them than somebody disagrees with me on everything, okay? If you talk to somebody, they disagree with you. I was talking about, you know, Rabbi Browse recently. You yeah. know, I learn from her every single time I have a conversation or discussion with her because she's smart and I respect her and I want to know why she has a different view than I have. And I realize there's a reason for it. You know, it's not that I'm right and she's wrong. Okay. I'm just right. telling you that I won't tell her that. Right. No, she's a learned rabbi. And uh, of course we can learn from Sharon, but you know, I believe it's Pirkei Avot that said, who is the wise person? It's he who can learn from everybody. Everybody else. Right. Exactly. And that's what I find the most interesting thing actually, you know, in life is every day you can learn something and you can even learn that something you thought about yesterday might be wrong. That might be the best kind of learning. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's what makes, it's what makes things interesting. And, and it basically, it's that intellectual curiosity that makes a difference in the world. Absolutely. We're living through this COVID situation here for a number of months. If you look at what science is doing, very few people realize the strides that science has made in a few short months. The idea that there may be a vaccine available in another month, okay, it may not be broadly available, it may not be totally tested, but the fact that something can happen like that was unheard of two years ago, basically. So learning is always going on, it's always accelerating, um, and it's intellectual. It's people that basically know they don't know, okay? I've always said the greatest lesson any of us can have is to know what we don't know and not be afraid of it. Absolutely. Well, Richard, thank you for such an interesting and profound conversation and for sharing your wisdom here at The Rabbi's Husband. Well, Mark, it's a pleasure. Thank you for doing what you're doing and for inviting me to join you. Thank you. 